Welcome to the Scuffed Podcast. I'm Adam Bells in Georgia. With me is Greg Velasquez in Iowa. We talk about U.S. men's soccer. Welcome to another crossover episode of Scuffed and the Total Soccer Show. Guys, how are you? I'm sore, man. I played soccer last night, and every single week I play. I'm like, next week, though, I'm going to stretch and get there early, and then I never do. So now I'm sore, but I I feel better knowing that we're going to talk about the uh, U.S. national team. It makes me feel better. I'm I'm not I'm not sore. I'm in kind of a giggly mood, and I'm also dehydrated. Uh, right before we started recording, listeners, Bell's told everyone we had to be very honest about how we're doing, um, and, and that's about as honest as I, I get. Bell's, I'm a little dehydrated, and I'm, I'm kind of in a Thank giggly mood. Thank you for your honesty, Joe. Yeah, you got it, man. Well, I'm I'm just excited for yet another opportunity to go in front of a whole new audience uh, that I can bore with some ELO calculations. <laughs> we are going to take a bunch of questions and split this into two episodes, just like we did last time. This time, the first one will be on the Scuffed feed, and the second one will be on the Total Soccer Show feed. Let's go. Question number one from Dallin in San Antonio. In his interview with Bobby Warshaw, Greg, that's Greg with four Gs at the end of it, was asked Obviously. about the Panama lineup, lineup and said, I think we got the lineup wrong, not in making changes, but in who we changed. I think there were some guys that weren't in the best form who played in the game, and we had other options that could have potentially performed better while still resting other play players. What does the scuffed TSS GGG mind reader think he meant by this? Uh, let's start with you, Taylor. Uh, I think, first of all, Greg Berhalter is very good at giving detailed answers that don't end up revealing all that much. And this is one of those examples where I think he he told us a specific thing, but then kept it general from there. My assumption would be looking at the changes he did make and the players that came out, uh, which was Adams for Musa, Aronson for Ariola. I think he is implying that probably Kellen Acosta should have uh, been substituted and probably Sebastian Legette as well. Um, and I think he was trying to mitigate the blame a little bit by saying that their form was off and things like that but I think that is what he is referencing that maybe Tyler Adams comes in you keep Eunice Musa in there you bring in somebody else for Sebastian Legett and you have a more solid midfield that is played together more consistently yeah Taylor I mean Joe <laughs> I, I think Berhalter is making a fair point right with within the idea that rotation is important and resting players is important and, and bells and, and greg you guys have done a good job of discussing that on your show and going through the different permutations that could happen and, and making your own and i genuinely appreciate you guys doing that stuff resting players is important and, and one thing that Berhalter talked about on that show with bobby is saying how the physical numbers and the output was off the charts for the costa rica game and i, I guess we don't really know if that's true or not but Berhalter doesn't have a a ton of reason to lie about something that specific on a podcast. So I think there is is value and merit in changing players. I think, though, you can still argue that rotating the full seven players, seven all, all of those players being outfield players, was a little excessive. And, and at the same time, I still don't know that any of the individual changes or a small set of personnel changes that Baralther seems to be referencing that he wished he'd done differently... I don't know if any one of those things would have had a dramatic effect on that game. I mean, the options that could have played instead of guys who did play, DeAndre Yedlin could have started instead of Shaq Moore. Luca De La Torre could have started instead of Legette. Busio could have started over Acosta. I don't think that was ever going to happen. I'd, I'd be shocked if Berhalter really regrets that. Richards over McKenzie would have been another option. I mean, none of those, to me, feel like game-changing 
changes. And maybe that's just me being blind or not fully understanding what all went wrong. But for me, it was much less about who was playing in that game as to why it went wrong and more so about a lot of the team-wide problems that Berhalter talked about towards the end of that podcast and that both of our shows have gone into in some detail. Yeah, I think that scans. And for for me, uh, again, even the initial lineup choices, I don't have, we don't have all the information about form. uh, And I'm kind of assuming that Berhalter is talking about like literally how they are playing that week in camp. Uh, we don't have all that information. The, the the initial lineup that he trotted out, like I didn't have that many issues with. Uh, if he had seen guys playing better in camp, but maybe didn't trust them as much because he doesn't have as much history with them, like I think that's a legitimate coaching rationale to go with the guy who who you trust a little bit more. Uh, but I do think that you know I I kind of disagree with Joe in that I do think marginal improvements in a couple key areas definitely could have uh, changed the outcome of that game, and and we were like so close to actually escaping that game with a, a draw anyway that it's it's almost like telling like it took our worst performance uh of the cycle to to get yeah. to to lose it you know what i mean if we had just had a little bit better uh execution in certain areas it very well could have gone one goal better and that's that's all we would have needed to almost be like cruising at this point through qualifying so it's well and and maybe oh sorry i didn't mean to just cut you off, the, just right? how fine Keep those going. margins can be and that's that's a good point, honestly. There there is a chance that well, I don't think the quality difference between a lot of the guys that were on the bench and, and were in the starting lineup are are game changing, completely different difference making sorts of moves. It's possible that if you have Luca De La Torre in there instead of Legette as an example, you could put anybody into that eight spot or, or really into any of these spots. It is possible that that one little marginal improvement helps progress the ball, helps get it into the final third, into attackers, and maybe some better patterns develop from there. It's certainly not an impossibility. And so I am sort of sympathetic to Baralter's admission of, of guilt here. In a yeah, way. I think I'm choosing to believe that Luca De La Torre instead of Legette <laughs> would have made a big difference, you know? And I, maybe that's wishful thinking, but uh, you watch him for Heracles, and he is a, that is what he does. He receives the ball between the lines, and he progresses it. And Legette couldn't do that for his life in that game. You know, he didn't even want to do it. So, um, and then of course, I think uh, the Costa decision is a little tougher because he just happened to have a horrible, horrible game, which I don't think he had had up to that point. But it was uh, it was a midfield that Burhalter highlighted as the problem in that game in the post game press conference. And if you know he's talking about like we sh- we should have played different players uh, in that rotation that we did, he's probably talking about at least one of those midfield spots. And um, and I don't think we can say that I don't agree with the sort of general consensus that Musa was poor in that game too. I think he had a couple poor moments, but he was pretty pretty good for the half that he played. So I'm I'm yeah. I don't know I'm I'm sort of given to the sort of silver bullet explanation that's like that's a weakness of mine but maybe LDLT could have could have made the difference in that game you know I think I think I agree uh, with Greg's point that when I saw the lineup I didn't really have too many issues with it when I first saw it and I agree with Adam we talked about this about Yunus Musa on our show that like a lot of the kind of getting caught in possession as I saw it was him looking for a pass and expecting a teammate to be there and then the one that stands out was George Bello. He was clearly expecting an Anthony Robinson-esque aggressive uh, run forward, and so he turns to play wide, Musa, and George Bell is maybe 30 yards behind where he's supposed to be, and so Musa has to hold and hold and hold, and then he loses the ball. And so I didn't think it was as much his fault as it was people being unfamiliar with the system, and that's where I go back to, I guess, Joe's point. I'm bringing it all home. Um, 
I don't think Berhalter necessarily has any reason to lie. I also don't think he has a ton of reason to tell us the absolute truth because then he's throwing players under the bus and pointing out his weaknesses and his vulnerabilities that people can then highlight going forward. And I think we get an element of truth to this and an element of vagary because that's what a coach is going to do. And I think I would say that like reading between the lines in my interpretation of it is that he's saying that maybe some of the players that did come in weren't not even up to the level, but just didn't have the familiarity with what they were being asked to do or just some of the chemistry you need to be able to have the communication in the game to say, hey, you need to be 10 yards further forward. Hey, you need to be five yards further back. And I think some of that was missing. Some of that communication seemed to just be a big letdown on the evening, and I'm hoping that that gets rectified as we go forward. On that note, can I ask you guys something? Because uh, like, I really enjoy the content on these, in these Bobby Warshaw interviews. Uh, with Burhalter, do you guys think that it would be inbounds or or pushing the line for for Bobby to have followed that up with which changes like specifically who are you talking about here? Do you think a coach would give that information up if asked directly? No, I think no. about I think about those things a lot. Uh, it, it's it's he's not going to get an answer. And he probably hurts his rapport with Burhalter. It's a hard thing when you're doing that interview to push in a way that you're comfortable with, but not have it kind of ruin the chemistry of the moment. And I do think saying which players, he knows he's not going to get an answer. And so you can ask, so then people know that you asked. But if the answer is just going to be like, ah, you know, I don't really want to talk about that next question. The flow is kind of busted there. So you have to choose carefully when you do want to press. And I think that's one where you know you're not going to get a lot of specifics. No busted, no busted flows, guys. No busted flows. I think about it. I thought about it specifically with that question, and then later on when he's talking about his principles, which again I really appreciate that like high level discussion of the. But then I'm always like, ask him what the principle is. Like, just have him outline. <laughs> let him let him go to town on. I mean, coaches usually love talking about that stuff. So, yeah, that I feel like he would have been much more open to to get into that than um than like, hey, I'm really mad at Sebastian for the way he played in <laughs> Panama City. Should we go to question number two? Let's do it. I do think that's an important. Let me just say that I do think that's a really important one. The the midfield, who's going to play behind Adams, McKenney, and Musa is a really important one. I'm not trying to be like sort of a tyrant here and just get the final word, but anyway, question number two. Tim <laughs> Tim in Baltimore. That's Baltimore with a D. When I watch away Concacaf games, they remind me more of college soccer than club soccer. Not the case with home matches. Do you guys agree? If so, doesn't that mean the tactics should be completely different? Shouldn't the focus switch to direct play and set pieces? Joe, why don't you start? I I think I agree with Tim's general point here about the environment being different and almost the aesthetic just being very different. There's there's a much different look. You sound like you fully games. agree, Joe. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I really I don't fully. Oh, I don't agree with the the end point that he's asking about. Yeah. But the, the initial plot line, I do. There's a, there's a different aesthetic to many of those away games. Not all of them, right? Playing in Canada. And whatever Toronto FC plays their home games is a much different experience than playing in El Salvador, right? But there is a different vibe in some of those away CONCACAF games, right? Older venues, the field isn't totally pristine, things like that. So that I'm on board with, Tim, in Baltimore. I, I'm not on board with the idea of completely changing and switching a tactical approach, right? You can tweak and you can emphasize certain principles and phases in a home game versus an away game depending on the environment, but completely overhauling the tactics in one game versus another game feels to me like it does more harm than good in a macro sense, right? What are you overhauling and what what are you underwriting in a game like that to get that result? Maybe to, to give yourself a slightly better chance to get that result, if it even does that. What are you eliminating? What work are you undoing that you've already 
done. And so I, I think it might be a one step forward, two step backwards sort of situation. So by all means, focus on set pieces, but use set pieces as maybe a, a differentiation in personnel selection and personnel choices. If you're trying to fill out the bottom end of a roster, maybe don't completely abandon your principles of play and your tactical identity for an away game. So that's just my two cents. It, it's a nuanced thing, and there's probably more nuance than I got to in that response. But Tim, I think that's my that's my take on that one. Taylor. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with with Joe, and I agree with Joe agreeing in part with the question because I see where Tim is coming from. I think it is more physical, and I think the games do then end up being disjointed. And in my memory, college games have a lot of stops and starts, and obviously there's more substitutions with break, which breaks up the flow a little bit. Again, I'm all about not breaking up flow, not breaking up rapport. Uh, I do think the U.S. could do a lot more with design set pieces. That's a thing that I feel like we always kind of end up saying about the United States national team, and. We, in the last couple games, it seems like it's either been a corner that was cleared by the first defender or a corner that was overhit to the back post. And there isn't a ton of other stuff going on. There's a few free kicks where I think you can see little design pieces. But I I do think that would be an area where the United States could get more out of what it's trying to do. But I would not say they should abandon the principles they've been working on of the style of play to then just get into a rugby match. I don't think that's (laughs) going to have the results we want either. I just I just want us to actually concentrate on set pieces in our home matches too. Like I want that to be a string. That would be fine everywhere. Well. Yeah. That should be that should be us. <laughs> I guess I thought the eleven, you know, the eleven against Panama, this was a game where it didn't look like we were gonna score a goal in the run of play at all. Uh the eleven had one guy, I think, who is a legitimate threat to score on set pieces. That was Walker Zimmerman. Um maybe you could say Zardis is too, but I don't, there's nobody else on the team who is a real threat to score on a set piece so maybe we should be putting a couple more people in the lineup on in one of these away matches who can score on a corner kick um who's the player that you all think like if the united states has a free kick they need a goal there 25 30 yards out who is the player you most trust to not even score but just put the shot on frame like taking a direct shot? Are you talking about serving a ball in? What, what are we after? No, I'm, saying, I'm, I'm talking about like, t- like scoring a goal. If you need a direct free kick, bend it like Beckham style. You need it in the back of the net. You need that, that goal. Who would you most want taking that shot? I feel like it's troubling to me that I don't really have my, – my answer might be Clint Dempsey, which is not a great <laughs> I answer. I was going to say Josie. He strolls off of the Paramount Plus set, <laughs> walks onto the field. I mean, with, uh, with those aviators I on, like I, I would believe he does it. I'm going to say Dest, who I don't believe has ever taken a free kick for the U.S. men's national team in an attacking area. Uh, anything outside of a quick restart, I certainly don't remember him doing that. But I, I would have said Kellen Acosta at some point, but that shine is sort of worn off yeah. for me over time watching him take set pieces. I don't know that it's really any of the attacking players either, and so or at, at any of the like the front line kind of guys. Dest, to me, feels like the guy who I'm most comfortable taking a, a pretty low percentage shot. And, and just using his sauce to guide it into the back of the net. You do need an element of irrational confidence, don't you? So I, I feel like Dest probably has that in a way that other players don't. Joe, I think that's a good answer. I, ha- I have a song about this that I, w- I would like you guys to sing, <laughs> and it's and the answer is Buzio. You know? <laughs> yes. That's a good one. That's a good one, Bells. Oh, Jean-Luca. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I do think to like Joe's point earlier, it's a it, – we're, we aspire to be a team that can go on the road in CONCACAF and play good soccer. And, and, you know, one day hopefully we can go to Panama City and play Los Canaleros off the pitch. But it's not, we're not there yet, I don't think. So I appreciate the question. 
Number three, Ryan in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Analytics have gotten many on board with Matt Turner being the better goalkeeper due to his outstanding shot stopping. Why do we not see the analytic take on Kellen Acosta more often? Over the past two seasons, he ranks 43rd out of 60 MLS defensive midfielders in American Soccer Analysis catch-all G-plus metric. Is it simply because we so badly want a good athlete to back up Adams, even if the player doing it may not consistently be up to the level? Gregory. <laughs> Perfect, because I feel like Kellen Acosta is like the sort of the poster boy for me for uh, the reason that you uh, have wide-ranging auditions. Uh, Kellen Acosta, I don't think, is in this team. In the, I don't think his, he, gave, he won his spot because of his club play. And I don't think that was really ever the case. He was, he was bright way back in his FC Dallas days. Uh, and that got him a look. And then from that look, he sort of added on to his men, his U S soccer teams like standing. And, and that's why it was so strange to me when he got dropped early in 2019, the very first camp, because he never got a chance to like keep repeating his men's national team performances, which were pretty, pretty decent uh, through the day Sarakin era as well. And so it was also strange when he got back because it's not like he did anything at Colorado that necessitated getting back. It was, you know, for all the redemption uh, storylines around it, he didn't, it's not like he like played his way off the, uh, off the field the way Christian Roldan sort of had in the last year. It was just like the same guy, but now he's, now he's suddenly like in our 23. So, uh, well, I think G plus is a, is a great metric to use to try to find guys who are having good seasons. I still think it's something like that can get you your look that doesn't, doesn't necessarily like lock you into a spot. And it also doesn't lock you out of a spot if you have a, a low scoring metric there. It's also, I think important to note the differences in complexity between G plus analyzing Matt Turner as a goalkeeper and analyzing an outfield player, right? I've used goals added, which is the, the full name for that metric. I've used that before in trying to figure out, you know, who are good players, who are guys that are impressing, what are they good at? And it is a great tool, but there is an undeniable difference in trying to evaluate a goalkeeper shot stopping specifically, which is something that is a little bit simpler and can be done with expected goals and, and an understanding of where the ball is going to be hit on frame to evaluate how good a goalkeeper is at actually stopping those shots and at, at what probability they're able to stop those shots. There's a difference between that and trying to evaluate a 360-degree outfield player, right? There's aspects of defending that we just can't measure right now with event data as opposed to tracking data, which is on the way. So it's not a like-for-like like comparison, but but Greg, I think the point that you're making is a good one. There is a reality in which Acosta's play for the national team and, and the fit in that system and, and what it has become, maybe not the initial system, but certainly as Baralther shifted that setup in 2020 in that January camp for the February game against Costa Rica, that shifted and fits more with Acosta's skill set. And that, for me, is is the area where actually Matt Turner and Acosta do have a similarity in this conversation because they both have a pretty definable skill. Matt Turner's skill is shot stopping, although he's dipping a bit in Major League Soccer right now. And Acosta's skill is mobility and being able to perform defensively according to the eye, at least a similar-ish function to what Tyler Adams does. So it's not the same conversation. And again, there's nuance that needs to be involved here when you're looking at the analytics for different position groups. But there is a similarity in that they both do something that is pretty clear to see that helps the team win the games in certain cases so i am probably the least analytics person of the four of us talking so big oh, old oh, contraire. but 
Uh, all right. Well, then uh, we can be joint worst, or I can, I'll take third. Whatever. My my <laughs> my my larger point remains like when we talk about analytics and we talk about like using uh, data to figure things out. Like it, it often to me feels like we're removing the actual gameplay from the conversation. And, and to me, like I think what was said earlier, I think Greg said it is like it's or uh, Joe. It's like a tool for finding underappreciated assets. But to me, it, it never is going to be a thing a coach looks at and says like, oh. Uh, like his XG or his G plus isn't good enough. So no, he's out. Like for me, Matt Turner being good for the United States is what made me think Matt Turner could be good for the United States. The data will support that argument or it won't support that argument. But to me, that's not as important because fundamentally Greg Berhalter probably doesn't care about that. He cares about what he sees in training and how the players responding Mm -hmm. and how much they execute his game plan. I, I feel like sometimes the, what that data can tell us after the fact gets sort of morphed into it needs to be a determinate factor in who we're calling and how we're looking at these players and how they're being evaluated. And we can want that or Ryan can want that or whomever else. But I I, I think to then assume that coaches are, are valuing it the same way or utilizing it the same way sort of sets you up to be disappointed because I think a lot of the time it removes the human element and that's the thing that coaches most often care about the most. Well, Taylor, I guess I'm going to push back slightly on on that. I do think Brother cares about analytics, number one. The amount of times he drops, he, I think he loves expected goals. I don't know how much he looks at other things, mm-hmm. but the, the amount of times he drops that in these podcasts with Bobby, it's it's so many, almost to the point where I think maybe he's overusing it in, in certain cases. But I do think coaches care about that, and I think their productive tool is to figuring out which players might deserve call-ups, but... To the, to the initial statement you made, I think it's important to use data, and, and the best people who do this, use data in conjunction with other things, right? It, it is a complicated situation to try and evaluate players and their performances. And so discarding data, discarding data is, is foolish, I believe, because you're taking out an avenue and a source of information to learn about a player. But you also should be looking at things within the greater context of a team. You can't just look at a player and, and look at their numbers within one system and assume that their role is going to be right. a carbon copy for the national team. So I, I think what you're saying is in part true, but in a lot of cases, the best uses of stats are in conjunction with other things. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the people who do that best, you know, actually make a good use of data in that way. Yeah, yeah, that's I agree with that. What I mean is I think sometimes data gets prioritized by people who are talking about the team. And it's more like, his XG isn't good, so why are we starting him here? And, and right there, I kind of already disagree with the premise of the question, because if you're looking at it more from A, we need a striker who can do X and Y and Z, and this player is only good at doing Q, then you've got, and not Q and on. That would be weird. That, that immediately, you can kick them out. But if like like if you're using it in that way to say they don't fit with what's being asked or what's required that makes total sense to me i just feel like sometimes maybe it's just because it gets boiled down so quickly and then people are having advanced analytics conversations and that's when i come in but to me it feels like sometimes the the human aspect the player doing what what they're being told to do or a player who plays for a struggling mls team isn't going to have the talent that they would if they're playing for the u.s national team and so it's just different situations that i think i always go with What's the coach seeing in training and what does the system or the tactics require in that moment versus what does the data tell us and then let's build the system from there? Two things. One, I'll beep out the, the letter Q from the podcast. It's a family <laughs> podcast. And, it's kind of you. And That's then, kind of you. Two, yeah, I, I join you, Taylor, in your uh, pre-industrial era uh, soccer analysis <laughs> commitment. because Wait till you guys learn about the steam <laughs> right. engine. Because, because Acosta, like, I mean, Greg sort of alluded to this, but Acosta was 
was really good in the, both the Gold Cup final and in the Nations League final. He earned a lot of he earned a lot of credit from those performances. And even though he wasn't um, wasn't very good at all against Panama, he um, I think he gets he gets another chance. Even though yeah, even though he to take the point of the question, he really is not a standout major league soccer player at this point. I mean, he played right wing back over the weekend, so yeah, yeah. I get it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I am very, very excited about the locomotive. Uh, secondly, I, I think, and I'm not saying Ryan is doing this. I'm not saying anybody is doing this, really. It's just my like my feeling about data sometimes is that it, it's used to have hard and firm opinions about a player. And Kellen Acosta is an example. I feel like sometimes it becomes like, yeah, but his passing range is this, and therefore he is not good enough. And I, I feel like soccer is just a constantly evolving thing that if you're changing your style, you're changing your approach, you're putting somebody else around a player who they haven't played with previously, you're going to get a different result. And again, the data can help inform how that result might go or what would work better. But sometimes I feel like we want things to be hard and firm and data will do that, but that's not going to be what soccer is. And so always I think I'm trying to set myself up to not rule people out, not be like, if this guy's in there, I'm going to be furious. Because then when you're watching a game and that person's in there, you're automatically going to have a negative perception of the game and it's going to inform the way you see it. So I think I just, I don't, I resist it for that reason as well, that I don't like it then informing me that this person is bad and they shouldn't be there because then when they are, something seems wrong. Being careful about data is is actually pretty useful, I think, in all um, phases of life, not just just soccer, especially when it comes with like midfielders. (laughs) Right. Because it is, you know, it's uh, data is collected in certain ways and it's presented in certain ways and it's, it is a useful tool even in understanding stuff like the economy, but it's not, you know, people often use it as a sledgehammer when it's, it's Mm not, yeah, it's not that. Should we go to the Should we go to the next question, Greg? Anything more on Acosta? <laughs> Just if if Acosta is going to play at this point, if Acosta is going to play his way out of uh, the national team, it will be with the national team. I don't. Ca- I literally at this point do not care what he does for Colorado Rapids. Like he's because of what he has shown us in a national team uniform, he sticks around until he stops showing us those things consistently in a national team uniform. Right. Number four, question number four, Bobby in Coldfoot, Alaska. And let me just say that is an awesome place to take a question from. And so I, good. if you have a, if you were from a place that sounds as cool as that, you're probably going to get your question read on the podcast. Uh, who, his question is, who is your sleeper pick to play well and impress us throughout the rest of World Cup qualifying? Taylor. I don't know. I don't know if he qualifies as a sleeper at this point. Can I say Brendan Aronson? Does that does that count since he's not an automatic starter? If we have our full <laughs> eleven, Joe says no. Not a sleeper. I think just because if he's if Reyna and Pulisic are healthy, I don't think Brendan Aronson starts. And so if he's not a starter to me, I had him in that group. But fine, Joe. Then I will go with an answer that I'm going to give later as well. I will say Joe Scally, who seems ready to go in terms of an option at right back, and we do have right back depth, but. Uh, after Dest, it is sort of like a bunch of names that I'm mostly okay with, but I don't know if I love Shaq more more than I love Reggie Cannon. I think Reggie Cannon is still my, my second choice option, but he only just started getting games like this week for Bolvista. So I think I wouldn't mind seeing other options at right back just in case. And I think for what we've seen from Joe Scally so far this season, it seems like he is up to the challenge. I like that answer. Greg? You happy, Joe? You happy <laughs> yes, that I didn't say Brendan Aronson? I am. Thank right. you. This this question seems designed to get me to say Dwayne Holmes, but I think <laughs> I think instead uh, I think instead I'm going to say oh man 
Kenny it's Seth. tough, man. Yeah, Kenny. Uh, Kenny Seth's been converted to a, a peer, kind of a pure left back for anyone who's <laughs> following his his play in the Israeli league. It's just you. It's just <laughs> this you. is a tough one because uh, it seems like we've we've kind of put together most of our eleven at this point, and even some of like the first backups. So it's hard to even call anyone a sleeper. Uh, but I think I'm going to say Daryl DK, who defies all the statistical conversations we were just having before. But because the field for I think backup striker is so wide open, uh, I'm going to say that he could come in and make he can kind of, you know, I think his stock fell after the Gold Cup. But I feel like it's the door is open for him to come in and be a, a difference maker in some of these uh, rough and tumble away World Cup qualifiers. And I'm, I'm really still curious to see how that would play out. That's a great shout. That's a really good yeah. answer. That's a really good answer. Because I was trying to think of number nines <laughs> who could come in. And like Pepe has done well, but uh, and Zardes has the injury now. So I think anybody who comes in and scores a goal or two is going to be vaulted into that conversation of starter or second choice or whatever it might be. And DK was there, fell off a bit. And yeah, if he has a couple goals, I think he's right back in that conversation. I'm, I'm waiting for Joe to say it's going to be Miguel Berry then. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not quite that far along on Miguel Berry for the Columbus crew. I do... I do think, though, there's a number nine, another number nine option in Dallas that could be a factor. Yes, Jesus thank Ferreira. you. It's a sleeper. I just enjoy watching Jesus Ferreira play. He's had some good moments with the national team before. There have certainly been setbacks at, at club level and international level. He's not been called in in a, in a while. The last time we saw him play for any U.S. team was in Olympic qualifying, and we know how that went. So Ferreira could be an option as a nine, especially now that the pool is a little bit shallow in that particular position group. I, I'd like to see Ferreira and Pepe just for the for the memes coming in together to the national team and, and being the two nine options for the next window. I don't think that's going to happen, but it would be interesting. I have two other names. I don't want I, I don't want to be greedy, Bell. So sorry if I, I'm stealing one of yours. Jordan Morris, I think, is a yep. sleeper option. Mm-hmm. He's almost back from injury for the Seattle Sounders to the point where I don't think, and I, I'd be shocked if he was involved in November, but early 2022. He could be an option there as a as a wide player that's tucking inside and making those vertical runs that Baranthra enjoys from that, the winger group. And my other option, he's already involved with the national team, and, and I poo-pooed Taylor's Brendan Aronson shout, but Luca De La Torre, we mentioned him already a little bit. Uh, I, I posted that clip of him doing a marvelous thing in the Eredivisie over the weekend, and uh, a lot of other folks seem to enjoy that. I enjoyed it. Taylor and I talked about De La Torre on TSS on Tuesday. There's a lot to like about his game, and he hasn't gotten... He's only had one appearance, I believe, so far in World Cup qualifying. I think he could be in line for more as this uh, as this progresses. Joe, you know that us being positive about him means he's not going to be in the next roster, right? Like, Shoot. almost guaranteed. I forgot about that, Taylor. Yep. That's on me. Yep. I'm sorry, everybody. Yep. Luca was my pick, too, so thanks for taking three <laughs> names, Joe. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, happy to do it. Happy to do yeah, it. Yeah, I think he's got the savvy and the phys- – he, he surprisingly enough has the physicality and definitely the technical ability to be useful in that number eight sort of attacking mid position. Um, and it sounds like Berhalter wishes he maybe wishes he'd given him a chance in Panama. So uh, I think he could be a key cog in the rotation and a good minute eater for Western or Eunice. Some of those. Uh, I oh, had... go ahead, Taylor. Oh, good, great. No, no, no. no. I, I was just going to say some of it with Luca feels like mindset. And, and again, not to like continue beating the Dwayne Holmes drum, but when I watch his clips, which I still do every time he plays, uh, there is just a total like mindset of like. Game go, goes forward. I'm, I'm going forward with this. We as a team are going to go forward, and I'm going to take on some of that responsibility and make it happen. And that is Luca De La Torre, right? That's, that's exactly what he's going to bring is that mindset. And maybe he won't be able to do it as cleanly in CONCACAF settings as he can do in the 
wide, what seems like a wide open league in the Eredivisie. But, but that bringing that mindset into, into the lineup for me still is going to go a long way. We bells, we used to talk about this a lot, that the failure to qualify last cycle felt way more about like the inability to open up defenses on the road than any kind of like not enough work rate, not enough defense from our attacking players, which is kind of something that kind of gets trotted around with some of the choices we've been making lately. And it's still for me is like, we need this attacking mindset. We need the guys who will unlock uh, a committed defense in an away environment. And Luca De La Torre is going to have that mindset. And it's one of the reasons Weston uh, is so crucial. I mean, it's, it's, has, it seems to be even more crucial to me now than, than I would have said like two months ago because he loves to, he loves to push the game forward. And he may, it's, it can be messy and it can be sloppy, but he's, he's going to go for it. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's beautiful. I love Weston McKinney so much. Uh, I, I, my, my other one, uh, I had this one on the next page of notes I have, so apologize for not saying it earlier. And if you, if you, Matt, uh, Brendan Aronson, you're not going to like this one either. But I would say Miles Robinson is also a player who I think could have massive importance for the national team for the rest of qualifying because he is suddenly, like, in my mind, our most veteran center back because John Brooks is so erratic of late and seems like he's going to be on the move at some point either in January or this summer and seems to have lost a lot of confidence and so looking at the other center back options it's Chris Richards or other young center backs or it's Tim Ream or Walker Zimmerman who I'm just not like there's always going to be questions about them and concerns about them and if you do have Tim Ream it's going to be Miles Robinson having to make up the ground and sort of do the covering job with no Aaron Long in there I think he again becomes this sort of veteran presence and if we need stability at the back to allow us to attack the way we want to, I think Miles Robinson, who is already very important, will just gain importance as we go through qualifying. Yeah, he has standout World Cup performance written all over him, yep. in my opinion. Uh, question number five, Matt Meyer in San Francisco. What's the highest level of soccer each of you have played personally? Ooh, this is a dangerous question. And how, how much of the tactical awareness that you have now did you have as a player? Do you want me to start? I'll start. Yeah. I was I was a try hard outside midfielder for an NAIA college in the southeast that's now uh in the in division three. My team was good, but I was not. Uh I was but I was easy to get along with and pulled a solid enough grade point average that the coach liked me. So um I came on at the end of the half to run hard, and US fans would have absolutely hated me passionately. <laughs> I do think, so to answer the second part of the question, I did improve as a player in my 20s, late 20s and 30s because of two things. I, I got into carrying babies around the neighborhood and juggling when I lived in Minneapolis. Hmm. So my first touch got better. And I started watching a lot, lot, lot of soccer and understanding the game better, which improved how I played. So that's my answer. I was a, I was a disaster as a 21-year-old, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about the same, fellas. I had one year of D3, uh, and then I was invited to, if I wanted to, come out for tryouts the next year, but the strong implication was uh, you have a lot of work to do if you want to make the team, largely because I was not in shape when I showed up, and also because I had zero of the tactical like awareness that I have now, not trying to say I have a ton now, but I had even less then. I think I was much more of a do what the coach tells you to do, and then you're doing your job and not really thinking about why the coach is telling you to do that was definitely more yeah. my style of play. All right. Well, I, I kind of like made my bones because of some of the tactical knowledge that I was able to bring on at the field. I was a goalkeeper, so that kind of tells you right away that I wasn't, I wasn't the best player growing up. Uh, in those days, that's what you did with your 
uh, weaker players was you put them turn them into goalkeepers. Uh, but I was just a I was just a voice, so I was the vocal guy, and it was just uh, I got to college at Iowa State, and it's just a club team. It's a bunch of bunch of guys who show up and and train a couple times a week, and then go play all the Wisconsin State schools on the weekend, uh, and it's mostly a traveling party. But but like that vo- that vocal part can can really be valuable, and so that's what I did. I, we had a good uh, coach from Italy who who drilled us on like how to. Z- defend zonally and, and keep your lines tight and all of those sort of cliches. Uh, and like, it just sunk in for me and I was like, Oh, I can, I can organize this. And that's what I would do is just boss players around during the game. Keep, keep everything tight uh, and get out of there with a one zero win. <laughs> Apply everything that Greg just said about him to me, make me a center back slash right back and, and leave me in high school. <laughs> and that's, that's my answer. Uh, I was a very bad Soccer player slash am a bad soccer player. Uh, Taylor's seen me play. He should he should know this. Although I th- he's been like weirdly complimentary, and I know like I know it's not true. Um, I think you meg but, Sam Stasco like five times. Let's make that yeah. a thing and make sure everybody only, messages Sam about that. My my highest level I've ever played at was at a media all star, <laughs> no media MLS Cup centric yep. game in uh, a couple years back, and I did score a penalty on Bobby Warshaw, which is a proud moment. Not that scoring a penalty is particularly challenging, but I played high school was the highest level I played center back, right back. Um, and I was the voice slash like like tactical sort of mind in the back, which I feel like is not going to really surprise anyone that I didn't have a lot of skill on the ball. But I tried to organize people. I think I had a pretty solid tactical understanding then. That and, and leadership ability was about all I brought to the table. Our team was also pretty bad, so that helped me out as well. Uh, so I, my tactical acumen, I think, has gotten a little bit better since then as well. But that was about all I, all I had then in high school. Nice. Bells, do you feel like you got more mature in your later twenties and thirties? Like, what? Because I am, I am the same. That I didn't watch games for what players were doing and how that could translate into my game. I was just sort of like, ah, they exist in a different world that I can never fully comprehend. Right. So it's meaningless to try to incorporate that. But like, the the one that always stands out is like, I, I ended up playing forward for my like adult team here in Richmond and watching Jamie Vardy and how he starts wide and then makes those like like kind of darting central runs and how he would keep gaps between him and the defenders. Like it's really common sense, but watching him, I was like, oh, I should be doing that. And then I just started reading the center backs a lot more, but I didn't do that until later on. And I'm not sure if that was maturity or because I watched more or some combination of the two, but I had that same experience, which I think is kind of interesting. Some, yeah, some combination of the two. I, um, I cared more in my late 20s and third and early 30s and now I care more now about the craft and the beauty of the game yeah. than I did yeah. uh you know as a college kid I I didn't I didn't have any sense of you know the mystery and beauty of the game which now I have full comprehension of thank you very much <laughs> um I I, I mean I but I think that that's par for the course yeah honestly. I think it's probably for like common. a lot of American kids yeah yeah I I do, I do I have played against Tony Sane a couple times he he pops up in like pickup games in the Twin Cities and I posted a picture once I think on Facebook back when I used Facebook which I don't really anymore but uh, of of he and I both going after the ball and one of my buddies was like you're not getting to that ball bro <laughs> did you <laughs> and did it's you get to true the ball? I, I did not. He was like, it was like for him playing against me is like me playing against a baby. You know, it's, it's, uh, (laughs) there's obviously levels to this. Question number six. We ready to move on? Okay. Bring it. Jeremy in Missouri asks if you could describe Burhalter's tenure as head coach of the USMNT, what word would you use? Complicated. (laughs) 
Go ahead, Taylor. Flesh that out. Oh, I thought we were just saying words. Uh, complicated. I think from everything from his original appointment to early signs of progress under him and kind of specific styles and patterns that we had not seen out of the previous managers. Uh, but then the setbacks early against Mexico, recruiting successes, victories this summer, inconsistent results, and I would say inconsistent I, I I struggled with how to explain this, but like psychological preparation is sort of where I've landed of late. That players, I think, aren't as switched on as we need them to be for games, and maybe that's because they're not as switched on in practice because they think, yeah, we're just going to win these. It's CONCACAF, no big deal. And that still is a thing that I think is hard. To what we were just talking about, Bells, it's hard to get that out of like a 21-year-old's head of, no, you have to study and work hard when they've been able to just sort of like I, you know, not necessarily breeze through their careers, but if they're having a ton of success at club level, the idea of, no, you've got to work at national team level as well, I think, can be hard to translate. And so I think the inconsistency in the way the team is mentally prepared is part of the complicated tenure of uh, understanding Greg Burhalter. I was going to say the word I would use is halting. You like that, what? Taylor? <laughs> you can't just make up your own word. <laughs> okay, halting. I just no, no, no. Actually, you know what? You can't. And now I need you to. I need you to actually give the full explanation for burr halting. Yep. Well, yep. it's really just halting, but with a burr on the front. Um, but is it like burr, like B E R, or is it like burr, like cold? B E R. Yeah. B E R. Okay. Okay. Just is a play on words, guys. Ha ha. Two two steps forward, one step back. One step forward, two steps back. All right. What will happen in Cincinnati? Are you describing your term, burr yeah. halter or burr yeah. halting? All right. Yeah. What will happen in Cincinnati? I don't know. That will, and I think that will yep. determine a lot of the narrative and the feelings we have about the campaign so far. Um, All right, Joe, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. Oh, Bells, are you good? Are you good with your burn? I'm good. I'm All good. right, Joe, I'm gonna go next because I think, I think I'm probably gonna be the most negative, which probably isn't surprising. Uh, but I'm gonna, my word is gonna be wasteful. Ooh. And it's Ouch. just, it's tough for me. Like, and it continues to be tough for me because you know the we had the whole cycle, and this is what it feels like for me is. We had this entire cycle for Burhalter to set up like his system. If any, if we were ever going to succeed in like implementing and installing a system to play, it feels like it would have been by committing to it early in the cycle and running. And and we got him in early, and it just feels like very little of those uh, early days are visible in what we're doing now. I'm not I'm not saying his entire tenure has been negative. I think there are some really positive parts of the, of what he's done. Uh, just to throw one out there, I still think our defensive solidity is like night and day from any of the last uh, two cycles, and that's a that's a huge plus for him. But just as far as like what he's done with the the full time that he's had to start doing what he wants to do, uh, it just still feels like it was uh, we we kind of left a lot of opportunity on the table. Yeah, that's that's entirely fair. My word is slightly more Thank positive goodness. than that, but there's notes uh, there's notes of what you're talking about, Greg. Mixed is my word. We're all roughly in a similar place, I think, with with Greg as the slight outlier. Maybe some excellent results, right? Some incredibly frustrating results, though, too. Some high profile do nationals brought in, lots of youngsters brought along. Those are exciting things. There's also been some frustrating reliance on familiar players, which I can understand, and I I sympathize with Berhalter in that regard. There's been some tactical progress, but some of that progress has come along painstakingly slowly. And, And Greg, I think that's sort of what you're getting at here. There have been changes and tweaks and and almost the team plays in in a different way they they do play in a different way now than they did back in 2019 and that's a good thing but it feels like it has not been linear or exponential progress it has been up and down and the progress has certainly been mixed and it's come along 
way too slowly given the timeline of Berhalter's appointment. So mixed is my word, Jeremy in Missouri. Good. Uh, number seven, <laughs> Calvin in Norfolk, Virginia. Which non-CONCACAF teams would you like to see a full-strength USMNT play to determine where they are in progressing the Triple G system, FIFA rankings, etc.? Taylor, start us off. Uh, Norfolk, first of all. Second of all, uh, <laughs> my favorite. My favorite. No, that's just because it's Virginia. Uh, my favorite remains Cosmo Kramer calling it like Norfolk in an episode of Seinfeld that always stood out to me. Uh, to the actual question, uh, I have two answers. The first would be Ghana. We played them in 2010, 2014. They're always very tricky because they're capable of playing in ways that I think CONCACAF opposition is not because I think they tend to have more talent. But they're not Germany or France. They are still beatable, and they still present opportunities for the United States to learn. And the other would be Colombia, a more talented, technically skilled team that has caused problems for the United States at multiple levels, both youth and senior levels. But they are, in my mind at least, reliant on key performers, Hamas Rodriguez being one of them, and so it's good practice for trying to limit the involvement of star players, but I think they're also good enough, Colombia, that there wouldn't be a massive expectation we beat them, that it would be more of a, like, how do we do against a team that could go far in the World Cup, and I think because expectations would be minimal, or there would be more, like, enthusiasm for the game than we better win this game, I think it could be a good test as well to see just what the United States can do with a little bit less pressure on them. Good shout. Greg, why don't you go? Well, Taylor just stole my Columbia pick, uh, but I, ha- <laughs> I had two as well ready to go. And, and the other reason I had Columbia is because I think they're right around the cutoff at the moment for South American qualifying. So it's like, would we be able to hang with the team right at the edge of qualifying mm. out of South America? Uh, and I'd be really interested in seeing a, a, seri- a home-and-home series. And my other one is going to be Japan, and it's kind of for a similar reason. Like, I want to see how we would do against one of the better teams uh, in Asia— and see if we are just sort of get a uh, a sense of where we stand globally, not just we like to compare ourselves to to the European uh, teams and what would we do if we were in UEFA. But I'd like to see the rest of the world too. Where do we stand uh, in in those comparisons? I want to see the U.S. take on Sweden, uh, not because of any World Cup qualifying uh, ranking system, but answer. because because of how they play under Jan Anderson. They play. This painful, painfully deep 4-4-2 block. Not all the time, not in every minute of every game, but there's a lot of deep blocking. No, it's every minute. And it's it's not, but it's close. <laughs> it would not be a fun game. This would be a terrible game to watch. I, I, I'm not excited about this possibility, but at the same time, I do think it would be interesting to see the U.S. play against a well-drilled athletic block in a way that I, I don't think Jamaica or Costa Rica really brought in the last window, we're talking about, and, and we've talked about how there has been some slight progress when the best U.S. players are on the field and that midfield is together on the field when when the attackers are are talented players up in the front line. There has been some progress there, but I'm not fully buying the fact that Jamaica or Costa Rica are real tests in that regard. They're, they're perfectly fine tests for this situation, but if we're looking towards a potential World Cup, seeing the U.S. try to take on Sweden and, and seeing has that progress really been there or is it more of a mirage i'd be interested in that one i'd also be interested in in denmark just because i love to watch denmark play under uh casper hillman they play almost how greg baralter has tried to get the u.s to play in possession and i think that could be a more fun open game with a, a really quality opponent that's already qualified for the world cup that gives you an idea of how good denmark is right now they haven't there haven't been many teams that have already qualified for 2022. So I just think that would be a much more fun game and a better taste in your mouth than the Sweden game, mm-hmm. probably. 
I was going to say any middle, middle of the pack UEFA or common ball team. Um, so like Switzerland or Wales come to mind, but then I'm like, wait a second, we just played those teams. Uh, so they were actually good. I think a good, good opponents to schedule for friendlies. And uh, it's just, we weren't quite ready for prime time when we played them. I thought we looked okay against Switzerland, but which goes back to Greg's point about the, a lot of the tenure being a little bit um, wasted. So I'd like to see us play a team like that again. I also had Columbia in my notes too, for what it's worth. Columbia is everywhere. Good, gracious. beautiful country. Uh, <laughs> question number eight, which will be our last one for the first part of this uh, two-part episode. Ryan in Overland Park, Kansas, says soccer pundits and fans in general have talked about this group of young players: Adams, Pulisic, McKenney, Musa, Reyna as the golden generation of the U.S. men's national team, while others have noted this is the first of many waves of talent in the U.S. On what side of the spectrum do you fall? He he goes on to argue that may, that he sort of maybe falls on the spectrum of it's a golden generation and there's not another wave of talent coming. So, uh, Joe, why don't you start us? I'm firmly on the side of the number line or the spectrum that says this is the first wave. And some waves are going to be bigger and better than others, Right sort of how the tide works i guess i don't i don't know um but there's real talent in american soccer right we're seeing some of that talent on the field with the u.s men's national team right now and that's the golden generation of sorts that ryan's talking about but there are still talented players coming up through the ranks in the u.s that i firmly believe will be players for the u.s men's national team in the future uh some examples i guess i guess all these examples really are centered around one academy, and that's the Barca Residency Academy here in Arizona. I'm more familiar with it because it's closer to me. I've been out there to watch some games. Caden Clark, really talented player, not getting time with the Red Bulls right now, but he's on his way to RB Leipzig over the winter break in the Bundesliga. He'll be there for the second half of the Bundesliga season. I think he has the tools to be a really good eight in a 4-3-3, one of the dual eights in a 4-3-3, or to be a narrow winger in the way that Berhalter tends to use those players positionally. Other talent at that club, though, at that uh, at that academy, Brooklyn Reigns, who recently just moved from the Barca Residency Academy to El Paso Locomotive in USL. Moises Arsenaga, who's just on the U-17 camp roster for the, the latest U-17 camp that U.S. soccer is putting together. They're extremely talented players. Will they become future U.S. men's national team players? I, I don't know, right? We don't know these things. But that's just one academy. There's so many other academies doing really good work in U.S. and American soccer right now. I would be very surprised if this was a one-off situation and not a repeatable crop of talent coming up to the Greg. I'm I'm mostly in the same boat. It would just seem so again statistically unlikely that we would that we would just somehow stumble onto this outrageous level of talent historically for for this program uh and to then just sort of go back to a, a, a like a nothing situation. Uh and the other thing that I keep thinking about is because this generation is actually so young, we still haven't even yep. seen like the late bloomers come out yet. They're going to be guys who we've either written off or guys that just never have made quite the name for themselves as, as sort of the, the meteoric rise guys uh, that are probably going to have an impact in some capacity. And we don't even know who those guys are yet, um, which, again, just for me is like uh, another exciting avenue of, of talent that could be coming through. Taylor. Yeah, I, I agree uh, with Greg on that one because I'm I've never really – bought into the golden generation idea i feel like that's an easier thing for people to talk about after the fact or oftentimes when it's the last chance for this golden generation and like you've got 
more like 30-year-olds, 32-year-olds who are trying to win one more thing or win finally, and then they can call it quits on their national team career. The guys we're talking about in this conversation are, what, like 18, 19, 20, 21? So is a 16-year-old of a different generation to an 18-year-old? Like, I, I, I feel like they're so young that it's hard for me to say because we would have to look at like 13-year-olds and 12-year-olds to say who's coming through the ranks that isn't of that same generation in my mind. So I th- I think, I don't even think it's going to be waves. I think it's just going to be a pool that continues to expand as, as I mean, like, would you put Justin Shea in the already approved entity conversation right. or would you put him in the next generation conversation? Like, I think it's just going to keep being a broader and broader base of talent. And then within that broad base, you will get distinctions that maybe become golden generations or maybe are just of the same generation and not quite as good. And it will kind of evolve from there. That That's where I stand on that one. I hope that makes at least some semblance of totally sense. Totally makes sense. I never, I hadn't quite thought of it that way. And it makes me wonder how much incumbency, how big of a role incumbency is going to play as we go towards yep. the 2026 World Cup. Um, because all almost everybody on the team is under 23, you know? So like how you're going to either either the competition is going to be opened completely up or um, you know, somebody who did has been with the national team for a while is going to have a huge advantage over newcomers. But yeah, it's difficult to separate the generations out at this point. Shay Shay is the same age as Pepe, you know? And uh they're in different they're in different situations with regard to the the national team so i'm a, i'm in, i'm in i'm in yeah. team expanding pool just like i like just that. like you too you're, you're welcome in the waters the water's fine uh because yeah like like look at the problems that the u.s women's national team has run into and that's where you have these established veterans who have obviously won quite a bit and been together for a long time and now you've got players playing into their mid to late 30s and you've got youngsters who have just sort of been waiting and waiting and waiting and those youngsters are now 28 but they're the next generation to step in or 26 or whatever it might be and then you've got even younger players below that like i think to your point bell is like that longevity can become an issue in and of itself but i guess we have to get there first before that becomes an issue but i think it's just going to be the kind of broadening of talent and then we'll see who sticks around and who gets uh Considered surplus to requirements, basically. Got to qualify for the 2022 World Cup first. But it will be it will be fun going into the 2026 World Cup talking about all the 25 year olds who are washed. Oh man, (laughs) (laughs) Anthony Robinson's past it. 27 years old. Get him out of there. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Remember when the prime was like 26 to 28 is what we all thought, and now it's evidently I don't know nine years old is when you're like rounding into your prime in professional soccer. Yeah, I'm gonna be like retired, retired from the professional workforce by the time Pulisic <laughs> retires from soccer. Um, not really, guys. Oh wow! Thanks, <laughs> thanks everybody for listening. I think that I think that does it for us. We'll see ya.